Well, hey, everybody, it's Kevin Stevenson. You're with me on I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, today, I have a guest that, that I had the uh, pleasure of hearing speak at the uh, most recent ACHE Congress. This is Dr. Katie Boston Leary. Katie is the Director of Nursing Programs and Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation for the American Nurses Association. Katie, welcome to I Don't Care. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Really happy. And by having a nurse on, I think it's about time. I do this about every six to eight episodes. Remind people, the show is called I Don't Care. And, and it's it's not that I don't care. <laughs> it, it's, it's because I'm not a clinician. And so I don't deliver direct bedside care. But you know, I'm proud to be able to support all of our nurses and doctors and uh, all of our clinicians here at my hospital that are able to provide bedside care. So I always need to remind people of that because every now and then I get a, a you know kind of a quizzical look from somebody. Uh, so uh, uh, I think it was appropriate having a nurse. On. Oh, and by the way, we're, we're recording at the beginning of Nurses Week. So happy Nurses Week. Thank you. Thank you for uh, um, saying that and recognizing that. It's uh, Absolutely. No, we so, don't recognize nurses enough, for sure. Oh, I, I totally recognize that. I'm reminded often that, you know, being here in a hospital, the only reason people come to hospitals are because of nursing care. So it puts me in my place. Uh, I need that every day I did. And so... Uh, so we'll just go from there. So so I had the pleasure, as I said, of, of hearing Katie and Quint Studer talk about uh, the Models of Care Insight study that was conducted earlier this year. So Katie, if you don't mind telling my, my audience a little bit about that. Sure. Um, that was actually one of the highlights of my year. Um, um, I've been connected with, with Quint for some time now. And um, I usually uh, at his conferences show up with data around where nurses are, how they're feeling, what their what their challenges are, and then uh, um, we just started talking about uh, where we are and how it seems like we're stuck. And he said, uh, "You know, let's do a compendium of all the care delivery models out there." And and I said, "Yeah." As a matter of fact, let's take it one step further. Let's understand what people are doing, understand the elements of care delivery models. Mm-hmm. And then um, find out, test that, test what we hear, talk to leaders and talk to nurses, um, learn from them as well. And, you know, between both groups, find out what's working and what's not, um, which will be, you know, the essence of our survey uh, analysis. So that's what it became. Um, we interviewed um, almost 3,500 nurses uh, using a quantitative study. Um, but that study was created based on uh, qualitative interviews with about 50 leaders, nurses and non-nurse leaders, uh, to understand what care delivery models um, and elements of care delivery work and, and don't work and what they're doing and what they're considering. And that got us to our results that we believe was enlightening because usually when you do a study, um, you fear um, being in a place where you're sharing something that people already know. Um, and and we were, you know, not delighted. It was uh, comforting to see that we were onto something with this survey, but nonetheless uh, concerning uh, regarding, you know, where some of the disconnects that exist between nurses and nurse leaders. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was the most interesting uh, part of the whole study for me was just looking at the gap analysis. You know, some were pretty, you know, pretty close. But there were some that that we obviously need to work on. So if you don't mind, 
you know, I, I've got the slides up. I just want to go hit on a few highlights and, and we'll oh, talk please. a little bit about. Yeah. So so the first thing, uh, the first question was, do you feel that your organization's current care delivery models need to be improved? Well, the leader said 72 percent. The front line said 67 percent. So I think everybody's kind of in line on, on that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. So when we're talking about current care delivery models. You know, I've got a, a pretty broad audience. Most of my people are healthcare people, but I've got some non-healthcare folks that listen to me because we talk about leadership as well. So can you explain some of the prevailing care, uh, care delivery models that are out there now? Sure. Uh, there, the one that's really starting to take shape is uh, virtual care, um, where we have uh, remote surveillance, um, where there are nurses that are working remotely and monitoring patients while you also have uh, nurses and caregivers on the ground um, providing hands-on care. Um, now, this is not a totally new concept because we've had tele-ICUs for years, uh, decades even, where um, there is a nurse that will ring, you know, some of the technologies are different, but the one that I'm familiar with is that there's a nurse, there will be a nurse monitoring the patient remotely, looking at their IV, IV sites, um, um, looking at the vital signs of the patient and, and physiological monitoring. Um, and, um, but of course, when you hear that, if you're a, um, a non-nurse, you would think that your camera is always on and there's no privacy. But the way these are set up is where um, there's a doorbell ring, audio do doorbell, and you, the patient answers the doorbell to say it's okay for a nurse to observe okay. you. Okay. So um, I want to make sure that anxiety is taken out of the equation for um, a non-healthcare people. Sure. Um, because that tends to be the, 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 the concern when you do have virtual monitoring. So virtual care is one that we're hearing that um, is starting to take shape. Um, we also hear that uh, there should be a reinvention of team nursing, uh, where um, it's more of an interdisciplinary approach and in, in small networks on the floor to deliver care. Um, we're also hearing about um, other areas with uh, introducing LPNs into the care delivery model. Um, so different um, uh, care uh, givers and, and personnel that we had before, some are using EMTs. So um, a lot of people are trying uh, different things. What we hope to see um, in a few months is that someone, you know, people that are implementing these strategies are actually measuring have a baseline and a post-implementation assessment and evaluation of, you know, whether it, the intent of what you hope to achieve with uh, these changes, um, those intents are being met and those expectations are being met because we, we don't want just to implement change and innovate just for the sake of innovating. Um, it needs to be data-driven in terms of what tweaking has to be done, um, whether it's something we should abolish right away um, or look at um, uh, modifying in a, in a larger way to make sure that it's working for all involved. Okay. You, you just brought up something, and I would love to have uh, to have a nurse clarify this for, for my audience again, because, you know, non-healthcare people hear the terms RN, LPN, you know, CR, you know, certified, you know, whatever, you know, PCTs, yeah. everything else. Mm-hmm. Give, can you give just some brief definitions of those of those various uh, nurses? Well, and it's more centered around scope of practice, really. Yeah. But, um, 
we have nurses um, throughout um, in the profession, um, and we have three levels of nurses. Uh, that at the highest, we have advanced practice nurses, and these are nurses okay. that have attained additional education to um, to get to a point, in most cases, to practice independently uh, based on state laws and, and um, some of uh, what is in place um, legally in terms of what nurses can do. But we're all about promoting full practice authority because as long as the training is there, they should be able to provide care and, and, and write prescriptions. Um, second, you have registered nurses where um, these are nurses that finish complete either diploma programs, um, baccalaureate programs or associate programs. Um, and um, sometimes some will go through all three of those, depending on where they are in their career. Um, and that's where you have um, most of the nursing workforce, right, in that category. Um, there are 4.4 registered nurses in, in, in the country. Um, but um, actually, I take that back because I think APRNs are included in that 4.4. Okay. And then you have LPNs. Um, and LPNs are light, licensed practical nurses in some states like California, they call them licensed vocational nurses. Uh, these are, um, you know, abbreviated programs that are not necessarily degree programs where um, there's a lot more focus on practice um, um, and it, a little less didactic, but um, still these um, LPNs are nurses. Um, uh, so uh, most LPNs you find because of the scope of practice uh, regulations, you find most LPNs in long-term care. You'll find them also in care management um, departments. Um, you, in the past, you wouldn't necessarily see them in the acute care setting, but now because of where we are, the nursing shortage and some of the innovation is occurring, we're seeing them in the acute care setting and, and they've been a welcome addition. Okay. I really appreciate you doing that because so many people will come up to me and I do a poor I do a poor explanation of the of the various areas. So you, you've done my audience a, a real service. Thank you. So let's get back to the study. Next big question is how would you rate your organization's resistance to change? So not a surprise. You've got about forty percent that say they're not at all resistant to change. Uh, and you've got about 36% that says resistant to very resistant to change. I, I think that, you know, it, it's kind of like just we as human beings. Yeah, about about 40% of us are okay with change. About 40% of us are not. And I don't know what the heck the middle 20% are all about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so how, you know, how does that, how will that affect things going forward? Just that that whole change management? Yeah, part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that um, you do have uh, people that, you know, it's kind of like the early and late adopters theory that exists, right? But you do have uh, situations where, um, particularly in, where there's so much volatility and, and um, uncertainty, it's hard as a leader to get people to buy into trying new things. Uh, because they, you would think that you want for there to be stability for you to be able to implement change. For example, um, if you're going to implement a model um, and you pilot it, you hope that when you get to the point of formally implementing it or even working through um, the process of defining it and developing it, you would also hope that the people that were involved in that process would be there at the end to implement it. 
So it's very hard, I think, for a number of uh, particularly nurses that um, uh, uh, maybe change is not a good idea right now because there's so much going on. Um, and change is seen as additional work. Um, and historically, there's some things that have been implemented over the years that um, there's, there's a sense of mistrust because um, things that have been implemented, change has been implemented over the years, um, have not necessarily panned out to the results that were expected. So, you know, folks are leery and, and we're in an environment where people are a lot less trusting. So I think that's where leadership comes in um, to figure out how you can tap into uh, what people, uh, what their fears are, what, what gives them joy, um, have them involved uh, very early in the process, um, and that can help with implementation as well. But uh, the last thing I'll say is um, when we're implementing change, uh, we think that appealing to someone's intellect is the way to go to get them to buy into the change. You show them studies and data, mm -hmm. practices, but we don't do enough to address the emotional aspect of implementing um, change and, and the emotions that are involved with change management. And we have to really understand uh, what that looks like and how we can help people manage those fears and those emotions. Because um, for the most part, we tend to say, particularly in a professional setting, that there's no, there's no room for emotion. But as much as we like to believe that, it's there. So oh, you're, you're exactly right. So we have to figure out how to manage those emotions and get help yeah. if we need. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, anytime we see change in our organization, uh, it, it, we go through that same iteration of, you know, it's just business. But, you know, it, it's not to a lot of to a lot of people, you know, particularly people who've been in an organization for a long time that they're really the organization and their peers of their family. And so yeah. whenever, whenever there's any change, you know, certainly emotions are going to come into play. So. So, yeah. so let's let's talk about the first care delivery model that that was uh, that was discussed, the LPN model, uh, and it said, you know, the question was since the pandemic, has your organization added or considered adding more LPNs in the acute care setting? Leaders, acute care leaders, said sixty percent yes. The frontline said twenty nine percent yes. That's a big gap. Talk to us about that. Yeah, that is. Um, there were some assumptions there from leaders. Mm -hmm. Uh, since it, to your earlier question, um, well, these are nurses, they'll provide the help. So most nurses will be um, on board, but that study showed not so much. And part of it is because you would think that we all know what, what each uh, group of nurses do. Um, the LPN model in the acute care setting is, is a return to, um, of what was old. And there are a number of people that are practicing today that have never seen that model. So um, they would have fear. And I remember during my time as a CNO, I went through the same thing where, and you know, we're talking about the crisis now, but for some of us that were practicing in certain markets where the, the well dried up for uh, talent for in nursing, we started doing some innovative things well before the pandemic. And, we started, I started looking at getting LPNs on my med-surg unit uh, back in 2017, 2018, because um, um, as soon as graduations uh, came in May, all the new grads went to other places where um, there was more um, uh, differentiated care being offered because I was in a small hospital, uh, some specialized settings and things like that. So 
I then said, well, there are a couple of LPM programs in our community. Let's see whether we can tap into that group. So um, I automatically worked work with the nurse manager and director, started working on, on, you know, getting a pipeline from that institution to ours to hire their best of the best to work in our med surge unit, only for us to hit a wall where nurses that were on that unit, even though they needed help, said that, uh, we don't know about this because we don't want our <laughs> to be at risk. Um, they came up with a number of things that we never really thought of. So we went back to the drawing table and um, did a survey of nurses to find out um, what were the things, what were the tasks that they were doing that was taking a lot of time that they can certainly see themselves delegating. And with the top response was medication administration. Mm -hmm. That's where we were able to focus with getting LPNs in to become experts in medication administration and education about patients' meds and uh, side effects and things like that. And that's where we started to see a breakthrough. Okay, very good. All right, the next group, let's talk about this resource nurses. And, and again, for the edification of my audience, would you explain the term resource nurses? Yeah, resource nurses are nurses that, um, you mentioned the I don't care um, kind of approach. These are <laughs> nurses that provide care, but they're in between the caregivers and the I don't care people like you. Like okay. they're in the they step in where needed. They're almost like your pinch, hit, your pinch hitters. Um, I think that's a term in baseball where you can get called up and all of a sudden you can be an extra pair of hands. Uh, you can uh, help with uh, IV therapy and inserting IVs, particularly with difficult sticks, uh, responding to codes and, and rapid responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, these were positions that some institutions had over the years. But whenever um, there's a tough budget year, you lose those positions because they don't count in your productivity numbers. Yeah. They yeah. look like excess fat. So um, we they, they get lost or reduced or removed over time. And nurses are saying that this role would be huge in helping them with managing their workload because this is a phone a friend opportunity for when I'm overwhelmed and I need extra help let me get some re- this resource person in to help with fill in the blank. Um, yeah. and, and that is something that is worth revisiting. Even if it's for a short burst during a shift versus an entire shift, um, that would make a difference. Yeah. Well, the question is similar to the LPN question. Is your organization uh, added or considered adding, adding more resource nurses uh, since the pandemic? 40% of acute care leaders, 42% of acute care leaders said yes, but 25% of the frontline only said yes. So a little bit of a gap there. Yeah, and it's really a belief that, uh, particularly now because financial times in acute care settings is tough. A lot of uh, organizations are posting um, uh, red um, red numbers in terms of their margins and things like mm-hmm. that. So it's hard to imagine that organizations be willing to make those investments and that's what you're seeing in the data. Yeah, and, and that's true. And and being able to talk about throughput and patient quality, you know, that's paramount to us. But we also have to look at the bottom line, to, and and unfortunately, that impact uh, that's impacted there. So a similar question around nurse mentors and coaches, and, and that's something that I think you know we've talked about because you know during the pandemic, so many nursing students were in virtual programs 
and really didn't get that hands-on nursing uh, education that previous nurses had. And so, you know, I talked to my CNO and he said, you know, they're seeing these these new nurse graduates coming out and they just don't have that skill set. And so uh, when asked, uh, 38% of the acute care leaders said that they were considering bringing on nurse mentors and, coach, and coaches and the frontline staff only said 14%. But it sounds like that'd be a, that would be a great area for us to look at. Uh, talk about that. Oh, for sure. And, and um, the one thing that I think would also help that, you're right, um, there was a lot that was lost um, during the pandemic with uh, shoring up the skills of our new graduate nurses. And we have seen data and heard from um, organizational leaders, educators mostly, that um, some of these graduates were not really prepared. So they had to do a lot of more, lot more work in terms of residency programs and transition programs for um, these new grads. Um, having said that, the other element to consider that makes it tough uh, for nurses to transition is uh, the complex patient. I, I usually, when I do presentations, one of the things that I share is, um, you know, I have a slide with a picture of a patient from stock photos, and it says, uh, "Where did all the easy patients go?" Um, there aren't any easy patients. And there used to be a time during assignments where you say, you, you manage your assignments that way, like, okay, this patient's getting ready to go home. They're pretty self-managed, so we'll give you one complex patient. Now all the patients are complex. And I actually heard um, at a conference, uh, A1L conference, that um, there are a number of med surge units sort of operating more like step-down units and hold units for ICU patients because of, of the logjam that we have with ICUs, because, you know, we don't have a lot of ICU beds in the U.S. Yeah. Very expensive. Um, and two, um, patients are really sick. Uh, acuity is high. Uh, case mix indexes, uh, indices are going up. Uh, so uh, patients go somewhere and they end up um, on units where they're not necessarily getting the right care in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. So... Um, I think that is a, a, a recipe for um, mentors and coaches to be in place because it's not just for new grads. I think even for nurses that have been practicing for a while, they're seeing very different things than they've seen in the past. Um, and right now, um, you have to wonder about how people that is shaking a lot of our nurses in terms of, you know, being able to practice uh, fully um, and competently. Um, based on what they've seen and known over the years, because they're seeing a lot, a lot of new things, and that's making it um, particularly tough for everyone, not just for new grads. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you there. Well, and the one thing that we saw that the pandemic really did was, you know, obviously EDs for years have been used by some people as primary care, uh, and we we've seen since the pandemic that those that those types of patients really aren't coming in anymore. And just like you said, you know, our case mix indices are going through the roof. Uh, everybody's sicker. And, and, you know, that's what, that's what I see us as hospitals becoming, you know, we're, yeah, you know, I'm so old. I remember back in the day, you know, we had admit people, you know, kind of for respite care, you know, the family's going out of town. We need some place to put grandma for a couple of days. In the hospital. <laughs> sure, bring him in. We'll feed grandma. Yeah, we're a hospital, but we're kind of a hotel. Yeah, that's gone. 
and so so now you know we really you know we really are taking care of those really 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 sick people yeah and, and many institutions are not being reimbursed for that high acuity um, right to the level that of you know of resources that they provide for those those patients so that's that's a big gap as well yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned virtual nursing a little bit earlier, and it looks like, you know, according to the study, that 56% of the frontline staff would be supportive of that, uh, or 56% of the leaders and 48% of the frontline staff would be supportive of that. And I know, you know, for us, you know, we're we're having to do that in some spe- uh, special areas, you know. Uh, uh, and so talk a little bit about that nationally. Yeah, and, and so I really believe that if you and I have this uh, talk a year from now, actually, I'm not even going to stretch it that far. Six months from now, that number is probably going to go up um, because I do think that this is starting to take hold. I think initially there was a trust piece, but when you really think about, um, we uh, put together, we had a group of uh, nurses and, and, and leaders and other stakeholders come up with a list of recommendations to address um, the nurse staffing crisis in the short term, one of the big ticket items for improvement is work, ske- work schedule flexibility. And I do believe that this model gets to that, where nurses can rotate being on the floor maybe one or two days a week and working remotely another. I think that would help with uh, burnout. It would um, also help with nurses feeling that um, um, they can contribute to care in a different way. Um, so I, there are so many benefits from that. I, I think uh, this is a great opportunity for us. And I think that um, we're seeing um, a lot of uh, uh, gig economy folks getting into this yeah. space as well because they see the opportunity. So I, I, I do think that um, even though the numbers are relatively no, low and they're not that different from nurses to nurse leaders, that is going to grow over time because people are going to see the benefits. And and um, I think we need to also remember, and that's one of the things that we thought about with uh, the care delivery model part of our recommendations is that we have to start thinking about the workforce, particularly the way we used to deliver care, mm-hmm. where the footprint of, of people that are providing care on the ground needs to be reduced. Um, mostly because we find that we're finding in a lot of our research that um, nurses do are starting to see um, providing care on the ground as a temporary thing, and they're moving into other ways of delivering care. So whenever you inject some innovation, that's a boost um, um, to nurses to think differently and care differently. And I think it could be attractive um, in terms of a recruitment tool for a lot of organizations if they were to implement it. Yeah, I, I definitely uh see your point there. I was talking to somebody last week and they were quoting a survey and I can't remember where it came from, but the, one of the questions was, and it was a, a very significant sample size of nurses. The question was, do you see yourself in the same uh, role one year from now? And 85% said no. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's, it, it, that's really concerning. Uh, oh, to yeah, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, I, I talked to nurse leaders before the pandemic even hit and, and much like you, you know, they were, they were facing uh, a shortage of nurses well before that. And, and so, you know, the, the latest number I've heard is 
some 800,000 nurses leaving the profession over the next three to five years, uh, along with 175,000 physicians leaving. So, you know, we've got to figure out, you know, all of us together, we've got to figure out how, what do we do to replace that? And it's not going to be, it's not going to be all bodies. We've got to be a lot more creative in our thinking. And, and let, that brings me to the, one of the last points in the survey that, that I found really interesting. When you started talking about uh, how do you feel about bringing back retired nurses? And, and that was something that, you know, both leaders and frontline staff were highly supportive of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but if you can find some, yeah, you know, if you're good enough to talk a nurse off of the beach, man, good for you. <laughs> I know. And that was one of the questions we fielded um, when we presented the data at ACHE. It was like, would they want to come back to that? Yeah. And, and um, that's a real question. And we're actually uh, thinking about whether we do some research in that space, because um, it would be important to know. And even for those that don't retire, when you leave, and I'm going to focus on the acute care setting, because that's okay. what that where most nurses practice, the data says about 60%. When you leave that setting, for whatever reason, whether you go into another area of practice or another setting to deliver care or retire, coming back is a huge, steep learning curve, right? Because um, from that time that you left, the documentation's different. The technology and the equipment is different. Uh, The players are different. I mean, there's so many things that makes it so intimidating to come back um, you have to wonder whether there'll be a willingness um, of retired nurses to come into this environment, not to mention what they're hearing. They're hearing what we're hearing. It's not so hot, not so good. So why would I want to come back? Because in some cases, if you're on a retirement plan, um, if you went back into the workforce, that could impact your benefits. So there are all those pieces that um, has to be taken into consideration for a retired nurse to come back in. And that's one item in that survey that I don't think we can hugely rely on to upend things. I really don't. It was good to ask, but um, I, I don't necessarily see um, that happening. Now, if we were to ask in what capacity would you like to come back um, and, and hear what their thoughts are, because um, there might be some innovation there and some creativity there. Um, we might find some things where they may say, um, yeah, I'd like to mentor a couple of folks um, or I'd like to review policies um, in my spare time. Um, I would like to do education in my spare time. Like maybe those are the things that they can do, but hardly hard to imagine that they would come back and take care of take full patient assignments. Hard to believe that will be the case. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you in that regard. Well, hey, Katie, it's been a blast having you on. Any final words? No, I just want to say happy Nurses Week to all the nurses out there. And um, know that um, the American Nurses Association, um, we think about you. We care about you. We appreciate you. We love you. And and please know that we're fighting for you. So um, uh, the change is not going to come right away. but And we may not see that change before our time is up. But at least we're going to hand it off right to the next generation to come. Well, I, I couldn't have said that any better. Katie Boston Leary, American Nurses Association, thanks for joining me today on I Don't Care. And folks, uh, we wrapped up another episode. So uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This is Kevin Stevenson, and I'm out. Mm-hmm.